The following content contains adult subject matter, including sensitive material, and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Therefore, discretion is advised. September 27th, 1984, San Diego. Lori Barros, a 22-year-old single woman and part-time sex worker, is walking through one of the city's notorious red light districts when she hears a car screech to a halt just meters behind her. Barros freezes. A man runs from the car, thundering down the sidewalk towards her, where he grabs her body by forcing her into a headlock. Her terrified screams produce no response from the deserted street as the man drags her blindly to his car and throws her into the passenger seat before locking the doors. Lori Barros is trapped. Her attacker quickly starts the engine and turns to assess her. She expects his eyes to fall on her breasts or legs, but strangely, they linger around her neck. Barros looks at the stranger sitting next to her. He's an African-American man who appears to be approaching middle age with large, muscular arms. After a few moments of silence, the man begins driving and attempts to calm Barros down with some light-hearted conversation. He explains that he's a traveler who spends most of his days in this car, where he enjoys the isolating tranquility of America's winding roads. But Barros doesn't reply. She just wants to escape from this violent stranger. Eventually, the car stops and the man instructs Barros to take off her tights and move to the back seat. He clumsily stumbles through after her, snatching the tights from her clammy hands and binding her wrists together. As his hands stretch around her throat, he demands her to swallow. I like it when you swallow. Barros recoils inwardly. She's had a few clients like this before. Strange men who are aroused by choking and strangling women during sex. Obediently, she swallows. But the man's grip around her neck doesn't loosen after this, and Barros begins to panic. She tries to wiggle free from the hands clamped around her throat, constantly scanning the car for any method of escape. She knows she's being murdered. As her vision becomes blurred and fades to black, Barros sends up a silent prayer of apology to her parents for getting herself killed. But then, after what seems like hours but can only have been a matter of minutes, Barros feels the suffocating collar around her neck loosen. She can breathe again. Blinking, she opens her eyes and sees that the man is still there. He clearly believes he's killed her. She realizes that she'll need to play dead to make it from this car alive. Barros closes her eyes again and takes tiny, subtle gulps of air as the man leans over her and flings open the door. Carelessly, as though she's no more than a piece of trash, he tosses her body out of the car and watches it thud onto the sidewalk before driving off into the still night air. Barros lies unmoving on the cold ground, terrified that the man will circle back to finish her off. She waits in a silent, paralyzed panic for almost 30 minutes before picking up her bruised body and running for her life. 
Unbeknown to Lori Barros, she has just survived a murder attempt from America's most prolific serial killer, Samuel Little. Her brush with death will, for the first time in 15 years, alert American police that a killer is on the loose. He's a man who's already murdered at least 15 women by strangling them with his bare hands. But how long will it take police to finally respond to the words of a female sex worker? Will they ever catch Little in the act? And how many more lives will the sadistic killer take? Police won't find out these answers for another 44 years when Little is just months away from his death and chooses to finally confess his crimes. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Samuel Little, the man who strangled 93 women to death. It's about the string of confessions he made at the end of his life when he had nothing left to lose. Two survivors whose stories tried to warn the nation about a serial killer. The slow response from a police force who wanted nothing to do with sex workers and vulnerable women. Bodies found abandoned in Los Angeles that began to fit pieces of the Samuel Little puzzle together. It's about the breakthrough in technology that finally led police to Little. The heartbreaking, arduous journey taken by a Texas Ranger as he desperately attempted to uncover the whole truth. And the final efforts made to identify the lost victims of Samuel Little. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It's now October 1984, 30 days since Lori Barrow survived Samuel Little's attempted murder. But he's returned to San Diego again, driving the same car along the same sidewalk and scanning his eyes greedily along rows of sex workers. It's unlikely that Little knows of Barros' survival. When he threw her from his car, he mistakenly believed she was dead. When, in fact, he was leaving behind a valuable witness. 
Barros wasted no time in telling her story to the police. And officers are out in San Diego tonight patrolling the very area where Little attempted to kill her. Of course, Little is unaware of all of this. As he drives a new sex worker to the same dark, quiet spot he took Barros, his mind is only on her forthcoming murder. Routinely, he parks the car and orders her to take off her tights and climb onto the back seat. But then, when he's just moments away from killing her, a bright light blinds Little's eyes and shines a spotlight on his guilty hands. As police smash open one of the car's windows and wrench the doors apart, there's nothing Little can do to avoid his arrest. He can't hide in his small car or run away down the city's seedy streets, so he simply accepts his fate. His hands are cuffed together, and he's led from his secondhand car to a police van. Little watches as police gently pull the woman's body from his car. Despite his violent advances, she's still breathing and has become Little's second survivor in the space of just one month. Finally, police have caught Little in the act of murder. Two women have now undergone identical attacks by the same man in the same area, and the police have even seen his crime with their own eyes. There's no denying the guilt and danger of this man now. Little is taken into custody in L.A. where he's charged with the kidnapping and assault of Lori Barros, as well as the attempted murder of the anonymous sex worker. He continually pleads not guilty to the charges of attempted murder against him and states that the attack on the sex worker was due to a dispute about payment. But he's found guilty and sentenced to four years in prison. Although these crimes should see him locked behind bars for decades, Little somehow manages to slip through the grasps of justice yet again. He's released from prison in 1987 for good behavior, after serving just two and a half years. This sentence for attempted murder has been shorter than his punishment for shoplifting as a minor. Once again, Samuel Little is sent back into the community, free to continue with his criminal lifestyle and confident that he'll always evade serious punishment. But as Little further infiltrates America's seedy underbelly, murdering underprivileged women and carelessly abandoning dead bodies in dark alleys, police will come to wish they'd stopped him when they had the chance. Investigators and detectives will spend the next two decades hunting down and tracking the man who strangles America's poorest women. July 13, 1987. A loud, persistent banging on the front door wakes up the cramped rooms of a tiny house in Los Angeles. Brenda Alford, a single African-American woman who's heavily pregnant, warily opens the door and finds her panic-stricken neighbor standing outside. The neighbor urges Brenda to put on some clothes and leave her house straight away. She's just heard that police have found the body of her mother. Carol Alford. Not much is known about Carol, although reports suggest she's an unmarried, older woman who possibly works as a sex worker. It's perhaps been a few days since her daughter last saw her. Brenda hurries out of her house and follows her neighbor along the dark alleys of LA until they reach East 27th Street. Surrounded by police tape and the blue lights of LAPD cars, 
Carol Alford's body is lying limply on the dirty ground of a deserted alley. Her body is naked from the waist down, except for a single sock on her left foot. Her legs and feet poke rigidly into the air, and her entire body is covered in bruises and scratches. Presumably, she was attacked a few blocks away and dragged hereafter. Brenda asks the police who did this. Who could so monstrously murder her mother? They reply that all they know is that Carol Alford has been strangled to death. Strangely, though, the police make no promises to investigate it any further or even try to catch the murderer. It will be another 25 years before Brenda discovers the truth behind her mother's death. However, Carol Alford's body is not the only one discovered on the streets of LA during the 1980s. Just one month after police recover her dead body, they find another woman's remains just blocks away. The body belongs to Guadalupe Apodoca, a 46-year-old mother of two and presumed sex worker. Her body has been strangled and suffocated to death. Her eyes are red from hemorrhaging. Her windpipe is crushed, and thick, dark bruises line her neck. Due to the method of murder and type of victim, it's obvious that her killer is the same brutal monster who murdered Carol Alford. The combined deaths of these two sex workers finally shock the LAPD into action. They cannot ignore the evidence that a vicious killer is on the loose. So an investigation begins to hunt down the man strangling sex workers and abandoning their bodies on LA streets. But what the police don't know yet is that the man they're looking for has already been released from prison 75 times in his life and has been acquitted of a murder charge. The man they're looking for is, of course, Samuel Little. But with limited forensic technology and a reluctance to trust the words of sex workers who have survived his advances, the police investigation will be slow and unsuccessful. Since his release from prison in February of 1987, Samuel Little has traveled widely throughout America, continuing to kill vulnerable women from the country's most impoverished neighborhoods. He strangled women in California, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Arkansas, taking his murder count to well over 40 women by now. During this period, something about Little's attacks changes. They start becoming personal. Little enjoys building relationships with his victims before killing them. He takes them on dates to restaurants and the movies, spends nights sharing a bed with them, commits petty crimes with a few, and some might even be considered his girlfriends. But no matter how intimate the women get with Little, their relationships always end in strangulation and death. Little, however, seems to think that there's a valid explanation for the murders of these women he allegedly cares for. He believes that his killings are acts of love. Little is convinced that he loves the women he targets and that they somehow love him back. He tells himself that his victims don't die hating or resenting him, but instead care deeply for their murderer. He'll later admit that, if they were alive today, they'd be my friends. 
You see, Little believes that the women he kills don't care about themselves or their lives anymore. They are haunted by a death wish. In honoring their alleged morbid desires, he views himself as some sort of angel of mercy to whom the women are grateful. Little swears they'll bear him no grudges for taking their lives, and that someday he'll see them all in hell. However, it seems unlikely that Little really does love the women he murders. His confessions of love are perhaps no more than twisted excuses for his actions, mechanisms to avoid any guilt he might feel. For Little, sex is synonymous with killing. It's not the women who have death wishes, but Little himself as he fails to separate sexual fantasies from his own fascination with death. Perhaps encouraged by his triumphant evasions of justice over the years, and assured in the belief that he'll never get caught, Little begins teasing and toying with his victims. On several occasions, he gives women a sinister glimpse into their futures as he asks them what they'd do if he strangled them. Little claims they reply, ain't much I could do. It's now 1990 and Little appears to be unstoppable. Police are no closer to catching him for his murders and his victims have no way of preventing the attacks or successfully fighting back. Their pleas for help to law enforcement continually fall on deaf ears, and they're left relying on protection from friends and neighbors. Reports suggest that Little's killed at least 10 more women from Los Angeles since his release from prison three years ago, taking his murder tally to over 70 women. However, something is beginning to slow Little down and interrupt his string of murders. At 50 years old, Samuel Little is starting to suffer the effects of aging. He no longer has the boyish charm or attraction needed to lure women into his car, nor the speed and strength to instantly kill with his bare hands. To avoid littering seedy neighborhoods with witnesses and survivors, Little has had to become selective with his chosen victims. He can now only target weaker, vulnerable women who will not put up a fight. And, frustratingly for Little, it's not just his murders that are being affected by aging. His lifestyle is also coming under threat. As a middle-aged man with no qualifications, job prospects, or savings, Little depends on crime to fund his nomadic lifestyle. He regularly shoplifts small stores for money or food, scraping together just enough to survive on for a few days and his age is making it easier for police to catch him for his petty crimes. He's now regularly found at the scenes of robberies and armed assaults, and is frequently incarcerated for short periods of time. It's perhaps due to his physical decline and increased time behind bars that Little finally stops murdering in 2005. Aged 65, with a criminal record stretching back to when he was just 16 years old, and over 90 women dead from his hands, Little retires from his life of murder. September 5th, 2012, Kentucky. 72-year-old Samuel Little is relaxing outside of a homeless shelter in Louisville, enjoying his own quiet company. He's tired today and his elderly body is suffering from diabetes and early symptoms of heart disease. Reports don't conclusively say what he's been up to since his latest release from jail in 2005, but it's presumed that he's retired from crime and spends his days in various homeless shelters around the country. 
but Little's lonely tranquility is interrupted today in a matter of moments. A police car pulls up outside of the Louisville shelter and officers march towards Little, announcing that he's being placed under arrest. Little perhaps thinks he's finally been caught for all of the murders he committed in his younger years. Now that police and forensic technology have improved significantly since the 1980s, Little has presumably prepared himself for this day. But as he braces himself for them to arrest him for multiple murders, police read out an entirely different crime. Little is under arrest for being in possession of narcotics in 2007. Unbelievably, he seems to have escaped justice for his murders yet again as he's transported to Los Angeles where a relatively short sentence awaits him. However, not long after his arrest, a development arises that makes Samuel Little's future look extremely bleak. While running his blood and fingerprints through their databases, police find that they match with three unsolved murder cases from Los Angeles in the 1980s. The murders of Carol Alford, Guadalupe Apodaca, and a woman named Audrey Nelson Everett. Each death was ruled as suspicious and believed to have been homicide due to the strangulation marks around the women's necks and the abused states of their bodies. But it's only now, with improvements in forensic technology, that police are able to link the cases to Samuel Little. Little is taken to court to face murder charges for the second time in his life. Only now, he won't be able to wriggle out of the clasps of justice. Although Little adamantly pleads not guilty to the charges put against him, it's not enough to fool the jury this time. His murder trial takes place over several weeks in September 2014. Witnesses, criminalists, pathologists, police officers, surviving victims, and prosecuting lawyers inundate the courtroom with undeniable evidence of Little's guilt. Forensic technology is able to match Little's fingerprints with DNA left on the bodies of Carol Alford, Guadalupe Apodaca, and Audrey Nelson Everett. For the first time since he began his murder spree, there's finally factual, scientific proof of his guilt. Samuel Little is found guilty of three separate accounts of first-degree murder and is sentenced to life imprisonment without the option of parole in 2014. As he's wheeled out of the courtroom, he raises a clenched fist in angry protest at the jury's decision. However, Little's story does not end there. Investigators and detectives are convinced that Little murdered more than the three women whose deaths he's been charged with. They correctly believe that he's in fact the culprit for numerous unsolved murder cases around America. All they need to do now is to get him to confess, and the LAPD know just the man for the job. James Holland is a Texas Ranger who's built a successful reputation as a kind of serial killer whisperer. With his easygoing style of interrogation, fluency in reading body language, and a determination to uncover the truth, Holland is able to make almost anyone talk. Investigators approach him about an unsolved murder in Texas, which they suspect Little was involved in. 
Holland's curiosity is piqued and he agrees to take the case. Although it will turn out that the Texas murder was not one of Little's, Holland remains determined to uncover exactly which cases are. Holland is flown over to California State Prison in May 2018, where Little is being held. Little has recently had his requests for a retrial and parole denied, so he's facing the rest of his life in prison. Plus, with his deteriorating health and old age, he doesn't have much left to lose, and investigators hope he'll finally give them a deathbed confession. So, accompanied by a group of FBI agents, equipped with a video camera and his Texan charm, it's time for Holland to make Little talk. May 17th, 2018. James Holland stares at the man sitting in front of him. Little has just admitted to having killed the three women from California in the 1980s and has hinted that there may be numerous other individuals whose deaths he's responsible for. And although Little flippantly dismisses the victims as hookers, Holland knows the women are worth more than that. It's now his responsibility to uncover every single person who died in Little's hands. The Texas Ranger owes these truths to the families of women who disappeared without a trace, people who lost their friends to a brutal murderer and children who grew up haunted by their mother's death. I have to run with this and take it wherever it goes, do whatever it takes. But his journey with Little won't be easy, and it certainly won't be short. Over the next 16 months, Holland and Little share almost 700 hours of conversation. Their chats are friendly and lighthearted, barely resembling an interrogation at all as Holland asks Little about his family, travels, and lifestyle, occasionally interrupting the flow with questions about his murders. Little answers each one happily, he seems excited to tell his stories and takes pride in describing each unsolved murder. This, perhaps, is the legacy he hopes to leave behind after his seemingly imminent death. Despite Little's age, his memory is impressive as he recalls every individual kill with photographic clarity. He's able to provide details on the victim's heights, weights, hair color, what they were wearing, as well as smaller details such as their last meal or the name of their boyfriend. The only things he has difficulty remembering are the exact dates and precise locations. Occasionally, he gives three possible years he may have murdered a woman in and place names that don't match with a state or description. But generally, his recollections are accurate and Holland is able to slowly match his murders to unsolved deaths from the past 50 years. Little describes his murders and victims with a chilling joy he casually explains how he picked the women up, why he was drawn to them, and laughs as he remembers how they suffered under his strangling grip. Talking about some of his victims, he interrupts his stories with remarks such as, man, I loved her, bless her heart, and admits that they were all his favorites when he killed them. It's plain to see that Little does not understand the severity of his crimes. He doesn't view murder as a serious offense and talks about it with a lighthearted, carefree tone of someone discussing their hobby. During one interview, he even likens his victims to food, expressing that he'd occasionally go back to the same part of town to pick me another grape. 
it's not difficult to believe that this man has killed over 90 women with his bare hands. To anyone watching Holland and Little throughout the confessions, it appears that they're close friends. They familiarly call each other Sammy and Jimmy, share bowls of grits and milkshakes, and Holland even tells Little, I love you, brother. But Holland's charm and flattery are deliberate. In gaining Little's complete trust, he obtains confessions and information that the criminal would never have dared reveal to the police. Holland also persuades Little to sketch portraits of his victims, recalling a newspaper interview in 1976 where Little was shown painting a mural in jail. Holland asks him if he'd be able to draw his victims. Flattered by his interest in his artistic talents, Little agrees. He methodically draws and colors the faces of every woman he remembers killing. But the portraits have a haunting element to them. Little always focuses on drawing the women's necks and includes dark, heavy circles around the eyes, as though he remembers how they looked in death. Also scribbled on the portraits are chilling reminders of Little's obsessive power over his victims, as he writes, she is mine. But time is running out. Little's health is quickly deteriorating and his memory becoming fuzzier. Holland begins to worry that the 57 cases they've matched and identified will be all that Little's able to give them until his health fails for good. But what about the remaining women? Will Little ever provide information on who they were? Or will their deaths always remain mysterious? December, 2020. Samuel Little lies in an isolated room of the Los Angeles County Area Hospital. He's now 80 years old and his life is quickly coming to an end. His heart is failing, diabetes is crippling his body, and reports suggest that other unspecified ailments are deteriorating the elderly man. Little is surrounded by no friends or family as he stares at the ceiling of the hospital, contemplating his inevitable death. His family cut off all ties and communication with him long ago, and it's unclear if Little has any friends left. Over the last few months, he's continued to confess his murders to James Holland. The elderly man has searched his memories for scraps of details and information about the remainder of his crimes. Just four weeks ago, before his health failed beyond repair, Little made his final confession to Holland. The death of yet another sex worker has brought his total murder count to 93. But as he lays dying, does he think about the women whose deaths he was responsible for? Does he acknowledge the injustice that he's lived until age 80 and is dying by natural causes, whereas his victims' lives were cut tragically short by his own actions? It's unlikely that Little feels any remorse for his crimes. He's excused himself from all guilt by believing his victims never hated him by classing them as unimportant outcasts of society, and by blaming his murderous compulsion on a God-given sexual fantasy. Samuel Little dies quietly on December 30th, 2020, perfectly at peace with his life and ignorant of the horrifying severity of his crimes. Finally, the killer who so brutally took away the lives of 93 women has met death 
himself. But despite the death of Little, his murders continue to torment America to this day as many of his victims' identities remain unknown. As of October 2019, the FBI have been able to verify 50 of Little's confessions, and they believe that his words are truthful and reliable. However, the FBI website still lists over 40 alleged Little victims who are unaccounted for and have yet to be identified. The majority of these women are so far unmatched to any missing persons cases or homicides in America during Little's life. A further eight of these women have successfully been matched to cases but cannot be identified, so remain anonymous Jane Doe's. These gaps in identifying Little's victims highlight the horrifying truth that no one was accounting for the deaths of sex workers. The police may never have noticed the disappearances of many of these women, and their deaths are perhaps not even recorded. However, hope is not lost for the families and friends of those that Little killed. Just like James Holland's determination to elicit every confession from Little, the FBI has issued a statement saying, it's important to seek justice for each victim, to close every case possible. They hope to do this by using Samuel Little's own words and drawings. FBI websites are populated with his recollections of every one of his victims. The victim profiles range in detail, from women who are described in just one line and lack any picture or personal traits, such as black female killed in 1987, Los Angeles. But there are also those that are rich in detail with accompanying pictures, possible names, and cities they were from. Black female, age 26, killed between 1976 and 1979, met victim in St. Louis, Missouri, possibly called Joe. The FBI desperately hopes that these profiles will resonate with individuals somewhere in America, and they'll finally be able to match Little's victims to the real lives that were taken. Members of the public are encouraged to contact the FBI to submit tips or provide any further information on the murders of Samuel Little. Over 50 years since Little committed his first murder, the lives of the women he took are finally gaining recognition. The faces of 49 unknown women stare out of the front pages of national newspapers, FBI webpages, and official government documentation. These women who were ignored by police for decades, treated as the lowest in society, ridiculed in court, and exploited by Samuel Little, are now center stage of a nationwide police investigation. Hopefully someday, their faces will be recognized at last, and their stories finally told by someone other than their murderer. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet Chester Weger, a 21-year-old Illinois native who became swept up in one of the most brutal murders the state had seen. Three women were bludgeoned to death while out hiking in a case that left police baffled for months. Eventually, they set their sights on Weger, who caved under questioning, then retracted his statement, claiming police had forced him to sign it. Weaker was given life, but over the years, people kept digging into the case. Things began to surface that called the investigation into question. And to top it all off, 
A mysterious deathbed confession suggests Uyghur might be telling the truth about his innocence after all. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matias torres Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.